Hello, faithful Passing Judgment listeners. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. Joe Armstrong here, the producer and sometimes co-host of Passing Judgment. Jessica and I would like to thank you from the bottom of our legal and politically nerdy hearts for listening and sharing our episodes. We've got some great topics on deck this year and we can't wait to discuss them. But for today, we thought we'd present a little tour of some of our guests over the last year and a half. It has been a wild, masked ride to the 2020 election, the subsequent legal challenges to that election, and the violent insurrection of just over a year ago. We've had trials with national profile that illuminated racial tensions in our country. We've spent a lot of time talking about misinformation, disinformation, and divisiveness, and maybe even shared some ideas as to how to counter some of those things. So call it a best of episode if you like. And so pitter-patter, let's get at her. When we booked California Senator Barbara Boxer in November of 2020, a woman who spent nearly a quarter century representing the Golden State in Washington, D.C., we were thrilled to get her take on her life's experience in public service. But what we didn't expect was her playful candor. Right out of the gate, Jessica asked Senator Boxer how tough she had to be when she was starting out as a woman in politics, and this was her response. Very. And there's no question. And, um, you know, in my book, I talk about the nine rules of the art of tough. And, and, and I'm sure you've gone through it, too. But in my generation, it was really, really rough because when I started running for office, hardly any women did. And when they did, people would say, oh, you must have an unhappy marriage or you must be a lesbian or you're neglecting your children. So we've come a little bit of a ways away from that. But you have to be able to focus and believe in yourself. You have to stand up when people try to shut you up. And, you know, there are lots of things you need, what I call inner applause, meaning when people are jumping all over you and telling you to quit, which I've had more than once happen, you have to hear that people are cheering for you, people that matter to you, whether it's your parents or your friends or your family or your constituents who did vote for you. So there's lots of tricks of the trade to beat it. But believe me when I tell you, it it is rough out there. Was there one moment that you look back and think, I almost just said, okay, enough, I'm going to transition <laughs> back into fill in the blank? Well, not really. I'm, I'm so tough. I stood up all the time. But the one time I got a little demoralized was when I first ran for office. This was before I was a member of the House in 83. Um, I ran for the Board of Supervisors in 1972. It was a Nixon landslide. I was running as a Democrat, and I, I lost a close race. And during that period of time, and that's the toughest thing to lose. You know what I mean? It's tough. But you have to accept it message to Donald Trump. But um, when, <laughs> we'll get there. Yes. When, I, when I ran, I'd knock on the doors and people would respond. And one woman said, I'll never forget it. She said, who is it? And I said, it's Barbara Boxer. I'm running for supervisor. And she opens the door. And the first thing she says is, I didn't think you'd be so short. <laughs> and I said, what? I said, this is how I've been since eighth grade. I didn't grow after eighth grade. I'm just five feet. And then she said, but there's really something serious and a reason that I, I can't vote for you. And I said, well, what is it? She said, you're neglecting your four children. And I said, I don't have four children. I have two <laughs> children. I have two children. To which she said, no, you don't. And she's arguing with me about how many children I have. 
And finally realizing I couldn't get this woman's vote if I had saved her life from a flaming household, I said to her, look, I don't know if you've ever had kids, but it's something you don't forget. And I only did it twice. (laughs) And I walked away. That was a moment that I thought, is this really worth it that I have to tell people that I only have two kids, not four kids, because she read it somewhere. But it's uh, unbelievable. In October of 2020, the election had reached a fever pitch. And into this fray, we tossed our favorite debate expert, Dr. Todd Graham. We had just watched a pair of debates between then-President Donald Trump and challenger and now-President Joe Biden, the first of which was unlike any debate anyone has ever seen for the office of the president. Donald Trump interrupted, he bullied, he lied with impunity, and he made a mockery of the entire event, prompting Biden at one point to say, quote, Will you shut up, man? This is so unpresidential. Here's Jessica asking Graham about whether or not the implementation of a mute button for the candidates in the second debate made any difference. What did you think about the big to mute or not to mute button? So, of course, in reaction to the first debate that we'll talk about, they made a decision that we would mute the candidates in between their conversations, in between their answers. Is that a pro or a con for the people who are watching at home? Yeah, it was a pro this time, for sure. I was, I will admit, skeptical of it because the Commission on Presidential Debates just seemed to be winging things, right? They made that decision on Monday before this debate to put the mute in there. And it was only for four minutes of the 11, of the 15-minute segment, which means they had 11 more minutes of open discussion that they could interrupt each other and yell at one another. But it might have helped a little in setting the tone for not interrupting. So it might have worked a little bit. But I also think that, like anything, that system can be gamed in the future. If somebody wants to you know, interrupt the other while they're speaking, they can still throw them off even though their microphone isn't working. Or if someone wants to just lie for two minutes, your opponent can't say anything. You can say anything you'd like about them because their microphone is turned off. So all systems have benefits and drawbacks. I've worked with microphones before in public debates, and so I've seen them go well and go poorly, but I would say last night was generally overall good. Dr. Todd, what are you, a lawyer trying to find all these loopholes around the <laughs> creating the mute button for the debates? So here's one thing that I was thinking in terms of how it could backfire on the viewing public, which is maybe we should see if one candidate is just a serial interrupter. So is there a point in terms of debate, in terms of what the public takes out of debate, that we shouldn't put up these artificial barriers, even if it means we hear more about what the candidates' views are on policy? Is part of a debate actually being able to see how they react in that particular environment? I do believe so that I don't think we have to have a mute button if we have better moderator training. And so one of the things debate coaches do is we train moderators, we train debate judges, we train them how to handle these debaters. And I just thought it was fairly interesting that many people interviewed me and said, but Todd, Donald Trump can't be tamed. And we aren't blaming Chris Wallace because there's nothing you can do about that. And my answer was always nonsense. I've had debaters both who've debated for me and who I've watched debate on circuits who were much more rude, much more interrupting than Donald Trump. Yet we were able to control their behavior through better moderating and and better sort of judge control. So, yeah, I think that would be where you'd start. 
Brian Karam is a muckraking journalist in the somewhat archaic, hard-nosed tradition. He covered the White House for Playboy during the Trump administration and at one point found himself banned from the White House press room after exchanging heated words with former White House aide Sebastian Gorka, although a judge eventually restored Karam's press credentials. Karam has been in the unique position to pose questions to presidents since Ronald Reagan, so the Trump administration was far from the only administration Karam had covered over the years. Karam absolutely pulls no punches. Here he is talking with Jessica in October of 2021, discussing the Trump years and why his administration's relationship with the press was a different kind of contentious. Few people in the world will ever get to be a senior White House correspondent for a major outlet. Very few people in the world will ever get to be in the White House briefing room. And I'd love to just start with a really broad, unfairly broad question, which is, what's the biggest challenge in covering the Trump White House? Getting anyone to tell you the truth about anything. Uh, Getting anyone to um, abide by what I consider societal norms, good manners, or professionalism. It's much like when I coached high school football, dealing with kids, particularly freshmen and middle schoolers. This is an administration that doesn't seem to understand the historical references or anything that has gone before them. They don't adhere to any what you would consider normal ways of dealing with people. And so if they come in and tell me the sun is rising in the east, I'd have to stick my head out the window and look just to be sure because they never tell you the truth about anything. So you already said it because you said this is norm breaking and this is different, but other White Houses have had contentious relationships with the press. Sure. Can you give us? (laughs) Yes. But it seems to me that you're saying this is just qualitatively different in every way. Is that right? Yeah. Look, I've, I've covered every president since Reagan. Reagan, I, you know, I didn't get along with him and there was a you know, Larry Speaks infamously said, uh, don't tell us how to stage the news. We won't tell you how to report it, um, which is pretty unnerving in and of itself. And, you know, uh, Clinton, we had to deal with what the definition of is is. And we had contentious relationships with the uh, Clinton White House. Both of the Bushes, I, I got into an infamous argument with the first George Bush at a Drug Summit News Conference in San Antonio. Um, the second one was a friendly guy, but uh, his he was very controlling and uh, hated leaks and was very difficult to deal with. Uh, Barack Obama had the uh, Espionage Act used nine times on people who were you know whistleblowers. So we've had contentious relations, and that's the way it should be because they are there to put their best foot forward. And we are there to find out the truth. And there is a, it's not a meshing of the gears all the time. It's going to be combative. That's par for the course. What's not usual is for the president of the United States to declare me the enemy of the people and to say that everything we do is fake. And then to admit that he only does it so people won't believe us when we report bad things about him. We're talking real fascist type of uh, propaganda. And while press secretaries in the past were trying to put the administration's best foot forward, they were also bound and tethered to reality in some extent. While they tried to stretch the facts or make things look good for the 
administration, they weren't propagandists who came out and lied wholesale, and then when confronted with their lies, lied some more, and then after lying some more, then accused us of just trying to say bad things about them because they're really the greatest thing in the world. We have never seen press briefings such as what we see now. We originally booked Ensei Ufot on passing judgment in the heat of the Georgia runoff election that would eventually send two Democrats, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, to Washington, D.C. And who is Ensei Ufot, one might ask? She is in no small part responsible for flipping Georgia blue in the runoff election in January of 2020. Ufat is the chief executive officer for the New Georgia Project, a voter support legal action organization and nonprofit founded by Stacey Abrams. Here's some passing judgment insider information. We initially tried to record an interview with Ufat on her mobile phone as she was crisscrossing Georgia in the hours before the runoff election. But the tech gods did not smile upon us that day, and mobile phone service was spotty. So we sent her on her way and rebooked her for just a few days later after that victory, and after she got some much-needed sleep. Jessica asked her what it takes to succeed in mounting a grassroots campaign in modern politics. So we are recording this episode just a few days, although it feels like maybe 100,000 years, after the Georgia runoff elections, and both Democrats won, and there will be no recount. These were two resounding wins. This will affect the balance of power in the Senate, because now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be the tie-breaking vote. First question, just... Were you surprised by the outcome? Um, I was not. Uh, it is quite literally the plan that I wrote. <laughs> um, and uh, what we have been working for, uh, for the better part of two years. I would say if I am a little shocked, I think it is that uh we indeed had the most secure elections that we've had in Georgia's history and that uh, we were successful in keeping the Secretary of State and the president's thumb off of the scale um, and that I'm reasonably certain that every vote will be counted. That's the part that surprised me because it's what we wanted. It's what we organized for. Is what we recruited and trained nearly 5,000 volunteers for. And, you know, you can't always be certain that it's going to happen. So tell me about, you said, I, I wrote the playbook, I wrote the plan. What specifically was the plan? Because I have a feeling a lot of people are going to try and replicate this. I know. So, I mean, it's the idea that, one, um, a lot has been written about Georgia's demographic shifts um, and the changes that are happening in the state. But quite frankly, uh, demographics alone do not equal destiny. So the plan was to, one, uh, stress test Georgia's election system, identify all of the weaknesses in Georgia's elections infrastructure, including the direct attacks on our elections infrastructure by our Secretary of State and other partisan actors. Um, it was to find where the votes were, where the potential votes were, where the surge opportunity was. Uh, register and add half a million Black and Brown and young Georgians to the voter rolls, make sure that they stay on the voter rolls, um, and then launch a massive get out the vote effort that started on MLK Day in 2020. 
that would see to it that they showed up and voted in June, in August, in November, and in the January runoffs. June was our primaries. August were also primaries. November was the general and January was the runoff election. And so the sort of central conceit of the work of the New Georgia Project is to build super voters. Uh, These are people who vote in every election in which they're eligible. Again, and to ensure that every voter, every election is uh, sort of more than just rhetorical and to bring underrepresented groups uh, to the democracy table. Trust in the press and media is at an all-time low, in part due to a coordinated attempt by certain actors to render all news other than the party line as fake news. David McCraw has spent nearly 20 years as the chief legal counsel for the newsroom at the New York Times, so he knows a thing or two about faith in the press and the importance of the role of the media in our democracy. McCraw joined us in March of 2021, and I strongly suggest to all of you that you read his 2019 book, Truth in Our Times. You said the law can only do so much. It can give the press the freedom to matter, but it can't make the press matter. And that is so true and such an important statement that the law can really provide, I think, a floor of protection, but not everything that we need. You say it doesn't matter how much freedom the press has in a society if the press is not believed. A distrusted press is little different from a shackled press. And there's a warning here. And I know that this book was written in a different time, even though it was only two years ago. Um, It was written during the Trump administration. But do you feel that we're in a crisis right now when it comes to faith in the press? Yes. Um, I I think if you look at the polls, you have to conclude that. The the last time I did a a serious look at the polls, there was one that um, had 60% of the population saying they had not much trust or no trust whatsoever in the press. And that's worrisome. Um, The power of the press is that it provides facts to people and they can act upon them. And if people don't trust those facts, then our power to call attention to wrongdoing, to call attention to corruption, to call attention to things that need to be fixed has essentially been dissipated. But I think, Jessica, you have to look at it at a much broader and, I think, more worrisome problem, and that is the degree to which the flow of disinformation, the constant repetition of the idea of fake news, the turning away of people from reliable sources, all those things have contributed to what some people talk about as the post-truth world, where People believe what they want to believe. They disregard evidence that doesn't fit their own biases. And in some cases, I think they just turn off and turn away. And it's very hard to have a functioning democracy if people are unwilling to face the truth, even the hard truth that they disagree with, or they simply have privatized their lives and are not going to be civilly engaged. That's not a good place for us to be. The rise of the white supremacy movement has been palpable in America in the last decade. Who would know better about how and why than someone who was once counted among its ranks? 
Arna Michaelis was once a founding member of what would eventually grow to become the largest racist skinhead organization in the world. He was also the lead singer of the hate metal band Centurion, a band that sold tens of thousands of albums to a devoted following of white supremacists. When Michaelis began to question his faith in the white supremacy movement, forgiveness is what got him out, and forgiveness is what he continues to preach today, years removed from his white nationalist past. He has authored two books, My Life After Hate and The Gift of Our Wounds, the latter of those two, with Pardeep Singh Kaleka. Kaleka is the son of a Sikh temple leader who was killed in a Milwaukee mass shooting event in 2020. Michaelis staunchly believes that forgiveness is the key to overcoming hate. Here's Jessica asking about ways to bring divided people together from April of 2021. You're almost describing white nationalism like a disease akin to alcoholism or drug addiction. You've made a couple of comparisons. Is that how you think we should think about white nationalism and hate, that it's a disease like alcoholism or like heroin addiction? Absolutely. And, and uh, we, we mentioned Parents for Peace and, and Parents for Peace has so many assets going for it that it is the reason why I chose that as the organization I do intervention work with. But first and foremost is that they look at violent extremism as a public health issue and, and not as like a political hot potato to kick around. Uh, if, if you look at the, the political polls polarizing our society, you'll see that the far right is all about, the, you know, anytime the, uh, a so-called Muslim, you know, a, a terrorist in Islamic clothing makes a, an attack, they're all about, oh, look at all these Muslim terrorists, Muslim terrorists, blah, blah, blah. And they want to sweep white nationalism under the rug. They, they don't say anything about that. That's all, oh, well, that's just that one guy was messed up. On the left, you see the exact opposite response. Everybody's a neo-Nazi. The neo-Nazis are the biggest threat. Uh, if there is an attack by a terrorist in Islamic clothing, it has nothing to do with with uh, anything. Yeah, that's a you know they they brush that under the rug. And I think that that politicizing violent extremism is incredibly harmful. It it serves the the narratives and the objectives of of all sorts of violent extremist groups. And it doesn't solve the problem, which is you have an individual who has lived through trauma that they haven't been able to process, and that trauma is leading them to adopt these violent extremist narratives, as you pointed out, as their identity. They adopt an ideology as their identity because they don't have a healthy identity of their own. And that's a that's a spiritual issue. It's it's a mental health issue. It's it's not something that we should hate people for. And and I would point out when I was a white nationalist, I wanted people to hate me. I to the I wanted people to swing at me. Like I was constantly trying to provoke violence. So when people are like, "Go oh, go punch a Nazi," and we you know hate like you can hate Nazis out of existence somehow. You're you're playing their game. You're you're playing by their rules. And and it's. It's very ill-advised to, to play by your opponent's rules if you want to prevail in any kind of conflict. Political science professor Brian Kloss has authored a number of books, and his most recent, Corruptible, takes an analytical crack at solving the age-old adage by Lord Acton about whether power corrupts people or corrupt people are drawn to power. Jessica asked Kloss how to weed out the latter in the real world from our episode from November of 2021. So now that all 
the listeners, myself included, are wildly depressed thinking about all of these kind of built-in, baked-in reasons why we do have uh, racial disparities, gender disparities when it comes to people in power. You've mentioned a couple of times now versions of how do we fix it? You said, let's think more carefully. How do we overcome this bias? I want to come back to this at the end a little bit, but could you preview for us now, how do we get out of this? I mean, what does think more carefully about this mean for people who are listening and want to help us improve and have more of a meritocracy, not not a situation where we're electing the person who looks like they could you know, carry us across a river as opposed to be really careful in a pandemic? Yeah, so this is about the last third of corruptible. And it's something that I, when I set out, you know, the easy part was sort of diagnosing the problem. Um, the, the harder part is, is fixing it. And I think that there's a few things, just to give an example, there's, you know, there's many, many more that I write about, but just to, to give a few examples. One problem that we know exists that's based on most likely just cultural racism and misogyny is that when you send out uh, CVs of people that are identical, but you change the name on the top, whether it's a man or a woman's name or a a black sounding or white sounding name, that you get different rates of asking people for interviews or getting the job uh, offered to them, et cetera, et cetera. Even though they have the exact same CV, right? Exactly the same qualifications. So one of the things that 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 brings to mind is how much more can we anonymize selection procedures? Now, where I teach at University College London, everything that I grade is anonymized. Everything, right? I never know which student I'm grading when it comes to essays. Now, that's really nice to do, but it's also not enough because the students who make it to an elite school like University College London are also getting spit out of schools where these gender and race biases may be inadvertently showing up in the grades of their teachers much, much earlier, right? And in plenty of countries, students get tracked by the time they're like 10 years old. So if you have a biased teacher when you're eight or nine years old, who's grading your stuff and is grading you down based on these sort of implicit biases, that can affect your life chances. So my point is that we have to start very early on these uh, interventions and and really rethink how we promote people and how we recruit people. one other quick example that, that I talk about in the book that's really, I think, the one that I found most, most interesting was related to police abuse, um, but it also gets back to this problem of racial and, and gender bias. So in the United States, there's one department outside of Atlanta that I found just amazing. The recruitment video is basically, it looks like a special forces recruitment video, right? It's like these guys in a tank that drive through, it's heavy metal music. They throw a bunch of grenades out of the tank. This town has like 20,000 people, right? It's like like their, their biggest threat is like the Home Depot. It's this tiny little place. And yet they're trying to recruit like it's a war zone. So who are you going to get as the police officers? You're going to get people who want to patrol a war zone. Now, that's not as likely to be women uh, because it doesn't look like a welcoming environment for for women because this is something where it's a bunch of guys in army fatigues with extremely masculine tropes in the video. And so New Zealand uh, took that lesson and internalized it, right? And so what they did is they've run a recruitment campaign for their national police force that is extremely inclusive and funny and welcoming and all about community orientation. And it's worked masterfully. Their numbers of applicants have risen dramatically in underrepresented communities. Their demographic diversity has rapidly increased. 
And as a result, the community policing organization looks much more like the community than in just about every U.S. police force. And so one of the things that I have been arguing for, for, for a while with this police debate is a lot of this debate is about what the police do. My argument is we need to think about who the police are. And that's true for everything, for politics, for business, for policing, for all these things is we have to stop just thinking about how to make bad people behave better. We need to get better people into positions of power and have it be more diverse from the beginning. That is something where recruitment is crucial to improving this problem. Linda Greenhouse has covered the Supreme Court for decades, and there are few who know more about how it functions. I know that as a fan of the court, Jessica was really jazzed to talk with Greenhouse in December of 2021. One of my favorite moments from this interview was when Jessica asked her about Mitch McConnell's strategy for stacking the court's current overwhelmingly conservative majority. So I know that Mitch McConnell had this theory that because in one instance there was a divided government and in another instance the same party controlled both the Senate and the White House that we should somehow treat a Supreme Court vacancy as distinct. In your view, as one of the nation's leading Supreme Court watchers, you've seen these confirmation hearings. Is there anything to this, or is it just a manufactured reason to hold one seat open and to fill one seat quickly? Well, he made it up on the spot. I mean, you know, as, as you said, I mean, the night that Justice Ginsburg died, he summoned President Trump on the phone. Trump was in Air Force One flying back from a campaign appearance and said, uh, Mr. President, you're going to do two things. You're going to fill this seat and you're going to fill it with Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, when people said, wait a minute, you're the one who said that a president at the end of a presidential term doesn't get to do that. He made up this new spin. Well, you know, of course, that's no longer a divided government. So, no, it was a complete make-way to get done what he wanted to do. And this brings us to one of the most stunning moments of our nearly 200 episodes of the Passing Judgment podcast to date. Just a scant few weeks after the violent insurrection at the Capitol, we were fortunate to book California Representative Norma Torres on our podcast. Joe Biden had been inaugurated by the time we had Torres on, but in just a few weeks, a mob of Trump supporters had sacked the Capitol building in an attempt to stop the electoral process outlined in the Constitution, leaving five people dead. Donald Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives, making him the only president to be impeached twice, and he eventually left the White House, something that was not a foregone conclusion at that time. Torres was in the Capitol that fateful day and was herself hiding in the gallery above the House floor. She heard the din of the mob and feared for her life. Jessica asked Representative Torres her first question, and then Torres spoke at length about her first-hand experience that day. I encourage everyone to listen to what you're about to hear, the entirety of her account of that day. The emotion and rawness is palpable in her voice even a month later. I want to start with the insurrection, and I want to start with your experience that day. I saw that you said, in my view correctly, you said this is an attack on our democracy, on a peaceful transfer of power, on our constitution, and on our rule of law. And I know you were one of the 12 people that was actually trapped in the House gallery. And I've seen the videos of you, and I've seen the videos of you explaining 
that you had a, I think it was 27 second phone call with your son saying, I'm okay, but I'm running for my life. And I actually think it is important for people to know what it was like for members of Congress on that day. And I'm hoping you can start from the beginning and tell us a little bit about your personal experience that day. Yeah, thank you um, for that opportunity. I think it's important for um, Americans to really, um, you know, think about this and, and hear our story. It, it is, it is, uh, you know, what happened on that day um, is a human story. Um, I, I think oftentimes people look at us as, you know, those politicians, and it, you know, it, it's this um, idea of of what our lives um, entail. And and that day, um, you know, it started like a beautiful day. I, I had three or four press interviews, and I was really excited about. Um, attending, you know, this ceremony, uh, finalizing the election, uh, the certification of, of, of the election of Joe Biden and, and uh, Kamala uh, Harris. So being on the balcony, <clears throat> I arrived there about 12.45 p.m. for um, the first hour of, of the ceremony, which we thought was going to take about, you know, eight hours or so. Um, because of, of the number of oppositions that we had um, from, from our colleagues on the Republican side. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I began to receive these alerts um, on, my, on my cell phone that first it started with the Madison building that it, you know, had been breached and, and asking people to move um, out, of, out of that building. And then it moved on to um, the Cannon Building. Once once um, the Cannon Building um, was breached, I decided um, I needed to go over to where um, the press um, suite is to, to try to warn them um, about what was the alerts that I was receiving. Um, I walked over there and their door was already locked. Um, so I knocked really hard and I couldn't get them uh, to open the door. So walking back to the balcony where I was, um, you know, we, I saw sitting there, I, I saw a an exchange between one of the sergeant at arms and somebody who was trying to come into the room. I heard a scuffle and I looked up um, and all I saw was um, a one of the sergeants had been pushed in. He was, you know, struggling to keep his balance and he pushed back really hard. The door slammed, a cell phone dropped to the ground. Um, that's when the rest of my colleagues that were sitting there turned back um, and, and, and a couple of them try to reach for the cell phone and I, I cautioned them, don't touch it. Um, somebody dropped it, they'll come back for it. Don't worry about it. Um, but it's things started to heat up. Um, for me as a 911 dispatcher, I'm always looking at what is next? You know, what is, um, what, how can I um, figure out what is the next step? What's going to happen next so we can, I can prepare myself. I would have never, ever, um, would have imagined that what would come next would be people that were trying um, to hurt us, um, that I would I would hear a gunshot uh, being fired uh, just below where I was, um, that I would hear tear gas being deployed, um, that I would have to put on a gas mask. Um, 
these are things that um, don't happen um, in the United States of America. They do not happen, you know, in at the U.S. Capitol, a historic building, um, the cradle of our democracy um, began to look more and sound more like a war zone. Um, it is important for people to know that, um, you know, we did not have the type of security that one um, might imagine um, exists or should exist in, in a building such as the U.S. Capitol. While we did have officers there, I, um, I am so disappointed that those officers were sent to work that day wearing Class A uniform. Class A uniform means that they are wearing their Sunday best, you know, their best uniform, shiny shoes and a hat um, because it's their ceremonial um, uh, outfit, right? It's their ceremonial uniform. Um, there were going to be a lot of very important people there at the Capitol. The vice president was coming to um, to the floor. So they, you know, everybody should look their best. Um, when, when I think about that, um, and I, you know, my son is a police officer. And I think about the failures of, you know, the security leadership that day. Um, that officers were injured so badly. One, you know, was killed um, as a result and two committed suicide after the fact. Um, number one, they should have never been sent to work in class A uniform. They should have been sent in riot gear. They should have been prepared. They should have had backup. One of the worst things that a 911 dispatcher could hear over the radio is a call for help from a police officer. And as a former 911 dispatcher, I could, you know, I could hear um, the officers' radios. Um, there was so much traffic; it was very, very difficult to hear what was being said. You know, fast forward to today, I. I I know now that all of that were calls for help, calls for backup. Um, I hope that those 911 tapes are released publicly. I think it's important for people to hear um, what was happening um, to those officers during that time and how they were communicating and how long it took to get them the help that they needed. From, from my own personal experience, um, what came next after those alerts were the doors uh, of the balcony being slammed closed. I mean, it was, you know, one bang after the other after the other, what felt like, uh, you know, 10 minutes, but I know that it was not even a minute. It was the doors being shut, locked. The door that was right above me um, was not closed. And we were yelling at the one officer that was standing there to please close that door because we were hearing a mob. We were hearing the, the shouts. We were hearing glass and, 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 and objects being thrown um, so that we, we knew that the situation was um, very, very intense outside of where we were, but we couldn't see. Um, the officer responded by telling us that the door could not be closed, that he did not have the keys to lock the door. 
Um, so we yelled back for him to barricade it, which he did. He moved furniture in front of it and, and, and barricaded us in. Um, but again, we were there with one officer, one officer, one gun, no riot gear, no helmet, no protection for that officer. Um, we were um, trying to process all of this um, when we heard the announcement that the Capitol had been breached, um, that we should um, lay on the ground and that we should stay quiet. Um, we did that. I never realized um, that I would ever have to crawl on my hands and knees from one side of um, of the balcony all the way through the other side. That's like a block and a half, a long block and a half um, on your hands and knees uh, trying to stay safe. Um, it was a long 45 minutes of pure hell, um, of intense um, noise outside. Um, and it, it was it was so loud in there. It was so scary. Um, very, very difficult to explain. At one point, the officer said, we are going to um, leave right now. And I want you guys to get prepared to get up and go. We're going to open up this door and everybody's going to run out of that door. And he started uh, moving us in that direction. And, and then at one point, the doors opened and he said, run. Um, you know, um, there were a lot of members who had injuries, were recovering from surgeries. Some of our members, you know, were, are in their 70s and they don't move as fast as some of us. Um, I stayed behind to try to help everyone and, and, and try to get people moving. Um, I didn't realize that my window, that it was going to be a small window, a small opportunity for me to escape. And I missed that opportunity. I didn't know that the officers would not be able to hold the line um, and that they would have to force to close those doors again. Um, and once again, yell at us to hit the ground. Um, but this time we needed to move in another direction because the mob um, was coming in and um, they were trying to hold them back. Um, that moment, um, many of my colleagues were praying, they were calling their spouses and their family members. I couldn't do that, Jessica. I couldn't do that because I know that if I had called my husband or my kids, that I would break down and I would lose um, you know, the attention that I needed to have in order to keep myself safe in order to keep my colleagues safe. Um, I had to remove my gas mask at one point because it was very difficult to hear the directions being given by the officer. Um, we quickly moved to the other side and, and waited um, what you know felt like an eternity um, for them to open up uh, the door. One of the videos that uh, we made public um, shows a female officer giving us direction, telling us that they were um, that there was going to be another opportunity for us to leave, and that we, when she told us to run, we needed to run, get up, and go. 
Um, you can hear in that video um, questions from myself and other members. We, we didn't trust at that point uh, the instructions that were being given to us because you know, they told us to run before and time ran out um, and we didn't want to run into danger. Um, we knew danger was right outside the door and it, we wanted to know where are we going to run to and who's on the other side. Um, she said, don't worry, we, we're, we're going to go. And then all of a sudden she said go and nobody moved. Um, and then she kept saying go. And then finally she very forcefully said, get up and go. And, and, and so we all started running out. Um, when we came out into the hall, um, out right outside of the balcony, there was a group of, uh, of men that were running towards us. Um, some of the members started screaming. We had no idea who they were. We thought it was the mob that was trying to hurt us that were, you know, coming, um, towards us. Um, the, the, the officer, they were officers, and they, they, at that point, they realized that we were very scared of them. Um, you know, they told, they, they shouted back at us, and they said, we are your security. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. We are your security. We're here to help you. Um, so they immediately told us, run, and just, you know, they escorted us and, and, and said to run, um, and they told us not to worry about the members that needed assistance because they were there to help those members get to a safe place. Um, in which we did. So at that point was when I, you know, just started running down the stairs, down halls. I was trying to record at that point when my phone um, started ringing and I, I looked and it, it's my middle child. Um, and for the parents out there, you know, that middle child syndrome, the one that thinks that you never loved them enough, you never cared enough. Um, that's my middle child. And um, I, I have to answer the call whenever he calls. If I don't, he feels like I don't love him. So in the middle of me running for my life, you know, I picked up the phone and I said to him, um, sweetheart, I'm okay. And I am running for my life. I cannot talk to you right now. And I hung up the phone because again, I needed to keep my composure. I needed to fight for my life. I didn't know if I would have to physically fight somebody for it. Um, I needed to make sure that the, that the people around me were safely running in the direction we needed to run. Um, later that day, when I finally talked to him, I, I realized how difficult that conversation was, not only for him, not only for me, but also for him as a police officer, you know, his mother just told him that she's running for her life. Um, I'm happy that he had his partner with him, you know, to help him during that moment. But I could just imagine how difficult seeing the images and the videos that were coming out, how difficult that must have been for him. Um, luckily, my husband was busy doing, you know, working and had not turned on the TV uh, my district staff called him and reassured him that I was okay and that I would call him um, when things calmed down, which I very much appreciated. Again, not being, not wanting to talk to him because I needed to keep my composure. Um, running through those stairs and through those halls and getting to the safe room, um, what was supposed to be a safe room, um, 
was a whole other experience um, arriving there and in being with my colleagues that had called for this violence. Um, my colleagues who had promoted, um, you know, the type of hate that the rage that we were hearing um, that was unfolding onto the Capitol um, was a, a very disturbing time. Uh, being there with them shoulder to shoulder, many of them refusing to wear a mask. And we are in the middle of a pandemic that has killed so many people. Um, that was also a surreal time um, for me. One of my Republican colleagues got a hold of a microphone and told everybody to kneel because we were going to pray. And at that moment, I just became so angry and just outraged by someone who has been spreading lies. All of a sudden, you want to pray? I am sorry. I, I told him to, I told him to shut the F up. Um, and someone else grabbed the, the microphone and, and, and some of you know my colleagues then began to pray and I, I, I bowed my head and, and, and prayed myself. But I could not believe that a person who had been promoting um, you know these lies that led to the insurrection would ask us to all of a sudden pray for our lives. Um, you know we waited, Jessica, we waited there four, five hours, like four and a half hours for backup to arrive. Imagine that officers are being attacked with pipes, with the American flag, with fire extinguishers. Outside, they're being beaten with whatever weapons these the mob brought with them. And they had to wait that long for backup to arrive. During the, that period of time, we had two announcements. Um, and both announcements were made that they were still waiting for backup to arrive and that we needed to stay in place um, because it was the only safe place for us to be. At some point um, during that time, they ended up clearing um, the U.S. Capitol and we were able to return um, and finish, um, you know, voting that day. Um, our group of 12 members decided to stay together and to walk together to the floor. I think it was important for us to show America that this, this election happened. It had a, those votes had been certified by each of our states and that we were there to do a job and we were going to complete that job. And we did that. Um, after being on the floor for about an hour and continuing with the debate, um, I decided I was going to walk back to my office. Many of the members walked back to their offices. Um, but then again, you know, that was more trauma. Walking through the halls, walking through that. Um, one of the halls was a hall that I had just been running for my life. Um, I, was, I had just been running through that, you know, five hours, six hours before that, um, getting to my office and trying to um, 
get the courage to open up my door, um, opening up my door and immediately running for my bat. I have a softball bat that has signatures of uh, U.S. senators and, and, and members of Congress. Um, we play softball um, against the press. You know, we have this one game a year to raise money for cancer awareness. And that was the bat that I grabbed to clear three rooms in my office to make sure that nobody was hiding here, that nobody was going to hurt me here, and that I was safe. I shouldn't have had to do that. Security should have escorted us back. There should have been officers in the halls. Somebody should have said to me or to all of us that it was safe for us to go back into our offices and their offices had been cleared, but none of that happened. We had to do that on our own. Um, you know, the, this, this whole experience was so traumatic. Um, I didn't realize that I had hurt uh, my eye. Um, following, you know, this incident, um, I had had some eye irritation. Um, I thought it was, you know, just allergies. I finally went to the doctor yesterday and I, I scratched my cornea. I realized that it was probably when, you know, my, I was putting on that gas mask and, and it was probably when I tore off um, uh, the mask because I couldn't, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't hear um, the directions that were being given to us by the officer. So there, there's a lot of consequences, you know, from what happened that day. A lot of consequences of a president of the United States who stepped on a, on, on a stage with um, TV cameras in front of thousands of people and told them, march to the Capitol and fight. And that is exactly what they did. They marched to the Capitol. They wanted to hang the vice president. They wanted to kill Pelosi. And they wanted to hurt us. We need justice. It is all too easy to think of lawmakers as villains or heroes, depending on your perspective, but at the end of the day, they are all human beings, just like us. At the end of her first answer, Torres said, quote, We need justice. Democracy matters. Reality matters. The peaceful transfer of power is a hallmark of our democracy, a democracy currently under grave threat. So thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for your continued support. You can find the Passing Judgment podcast on Twitter at PassJudgmentPod, also on Instagram at PassingJudgmentPod. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at LevinsonJessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at InDepthDay, that's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y, and also at JoeArmstrong.com slash InDepthDay. So be well, everyone. Stay safe. Stay involved. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon.